I had the privilege of being invited to go on a trip to the Holy Land back in 2000. Because of the fighting at the time between the Israelis and the Palestinians, there were very few tourists in Israel. I can remember when we were at the ruins of Tel Megiddo, which in Greek is called Armageddon. There, are se- there were several Israeli Air Force jets just roaring past and coming back around, deafening sound. That evening on the news, I learned that those jets were retaliating on the Palestinians on the West Bank for an earlier bombing. Our very knowledgeable and entertaining guide, his name was Shlomo. I thought, I thought the name Shlomo was pretty funny. Until I learned that in Hebrew... The name Shlomo means Solomon. He and others had taken so many trips and taken others through uh, Israel before they were commenting over and over again how few tourists there were. We'd regularly pull into a sightseeing destination and there was a huge parking lot and we'd be the only bus there or maybe the only one of two buses that were there. Such was the case when we visited the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Eastern Christianity, the Greek Orthodox Church, calls it the Church of the Resurrection. This church is said to be built on the side of Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, and on the side of the tomb where Jesus was resurrected. An interesting fact about the church is who holds the key to the entrance of the church. In 1192, Siladin assigned responsibility to two of the neighboring Muslim families. The Judehu uh, were entrusted with the key, and the Nuzabah, who had been custodians of the church since the days of uh, Caliph Omar in 637, retained the position of keeping the door. The arrangement is still in place to this very day, some 900 years later. Twice each day, a Jehuda family member brings the key to the door, which is then locked and unlocked by a member of the Nuzabeth family. So the key to lock and unlock the entrance to one of the most holy, to one of the most venerated Christian sites on the planet is under the control of two Muslim families. How ironic is that? Visiting the church was a moving experience for me. I was deeply moved when I visited the church of the Holy Sepulchre because I had so much time and opportunity to be in the church Soak up the history, and for there were so few people there. On our last night, we had a goodbye dinner with our Jewish guide Shlomo and his Jewish tour company. And it was a great time to relax and reminisce about all that we had seen. As Shlomo was recounting the stories of our trip to his boss, he kept remarking how very few tourists there were. When he came to talk about our time at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, this Jewish man And I quote, he said, you wouldn't believe it. When we went to the tomb of Jesus, it was empty. And right on cue, I said, what do you think we've been trying to tell you for 2000 years? It was a real funny moment. But you know what the truth of the matter is? The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. And that empty tomb is the dividing line between Christianity and all other religions. Today we have gathered together to celebrate because the tomb is empty. We praise God. We serve a risen Savior. 
our scripture today teaches us three vital truths about the resurrection of Jesus. Please turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, it's called the resurrection chapter because it details so much information about the resurrection. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's look at the fact of the resurrection. Paul starts off this very important chapter talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He says he wants to remind them of the gospel. It's always good to be reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, this morning, we're reminded of the gospel. It's especially valuable to be reminded of the gospel in this Easter season. The truth of the gospel is the singularly most important truth. Paul says some pretty interesting things about the gospel. First, he says to the Corinthians that he received the gospel. The good news is always something that comes to us. It's some from, you know, from somebody that already had received it. No one has ever invented it. No one ever discovered it. It is something that is received. What Paul received, we received. Our message is the exact same message that Jesus told the disciples. Our message is the exact same message that Paul received from Jesus. The good news never had its origin in man, but God gave it to us. It's our responsibility to accept it. It is our privilege to share it. Not only do they receive the gospel, but they also stand in the gospel. As followers of Christ, we stand in the gospel. We hold our ground on the gospel. The gospel is so central to who we are as Christians, we stand in it. In the dangerous and slippery world that we live in, the gospel keeps our feet on solid ground. In our tempting and seducing world, it gives us the power to resist In our broken and hurting world, it strengthens us to continue to look to Jesus for our wholeness and completeness. The gospel is not only the anchor for our souls, but it is a solid foundation in which we stand to build a godly life. See, not only did they receive it, not only did they stand in it, but they were also being perfected. They were being saved by it. The word received in the Greek points to a certain time in the past where the Corinthians received it. But the word saved in our text is in the present tense, not just pointing to a time in the past, but an ongoing present reality of life. Not only were they saved at some point in their past, but Paul is trying to point out that we need to continue to grow and mature in our Christian walk. Salvation is not just a transaction. 
It's the beginning of an ongoing life transformation. Salvation's not just a transaction. It is the beginning of a life of ongoing transformation. There's a clear progression of thought here. First you receive the gospel. Then you stand in the gospel. Then you move forward with the gospel. It is only the truth of the gospel. It is only the truth of what has once for all been delivered to the saints that has any value for eternal life. We must continually hold fast, hold firmly to the truth of God's word. If anyone believes in something other than a gospel, their belief is in vain. It is worthless. Why? Because the thing they are trusting in is worthless. Only the good news of Jesus is worthy to be trusted. Starting in verse 3, Paul details for us the gospel, the good news that he had received and that he was teaching and preaching. He calls the gospel the first importance. It's not first in a temporal sense, but rather it's first in priority. The first truth and teaching of the gospel is the central reality of Christianity. The gospel is the most important truth. The gospel is the highest priority. These following verses come from Paul's pen, but they might not have originated in Paul's brain. See, many scholars see these words as an early Christian creed, as an early Christian codified statement of doctrine. These short statements might have been something like the very start of the very first church doctrinal statement. If that is accurate, these words would have been formulated very early in church history, very shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The teaching of the death and resurrection of Christ was not some later development of Christian thought. No, the truth of the substitutionary death, the truth of the victorious resurrection of Jesus was the very first, was the highest priority teaching of the church since day one. As detailed in our text this morning, the gospel, the central facts of Christianity are that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Some of the Old Testament scriptures that predicted his death are Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 22. The substitutionary death of Christ. Jesus taking the penalty for your sins and my sins is the heart of the Christian message. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Next it says he was buried. Jesus was truly dead. Everyone involved in dealing with the body of Jesus would attest to the fact that Jesus was dead. The Roman soldiers, to the faithful followers, everyone confirmed by their actions that Jesus was dead. Then, it says he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The early church probably had Old Testament scriptures like Psalm 16 and the story of Jonah based on uh, Jesus' own words in Matthew. In the Greek, the idea here is not just pointing to an event in the past, but it also has the emphasis that he was raised forever. Think about this now. Jesus continues forever as the risen Savior. Next, he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Now we have a series of eyewitness reports of seeing the resurrected Jesus. Cephas is the older name, the original name of Peter. 
Why would Paul have used that older name, that, uh, that original name, when he was commonly accustomed to just calling him Peter? Well, it might be because these words are part of that original teaching of the church, which date back to the very beginning of the church. This is one of the evidences that point to these words as being part of a first doctrinal statement of the church. The twelve is a technical term that's used to describe the twelve apostles. Verse 6 describes one of the most convincing resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. It says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers, at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. There were many people still alive at the time of Paul's writing of 1 Corinthians that could attest, you could talk to them, the fact of seeing the resurrected Christ. It's very probable that some in the church at Corinth knew people who had seen the resurrected Lord. This appearance of Christ to so many at once may have taken place in Galilee where Jesus said to go and see him where the eleven and maybe many more went to go see the risen Lord. The scripture then says he appeared to James. This James is Jesus' half-brother. John in uh, chapter 7 verse 5 says that, While Jesus was doing his ministry on earth, his brothers and sisters did not believe that he was the Messiah. But in Acts 1.14, it tells us that the brothers and sisters had now joined this early church movement. And as time goes on, James becomes the most prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. And he writes the book of James in our New Testament. What made such a radical change of heart in their lives? It was only after experiencing the inconvertible reality of seeing the resurrected Jesus that James, his brothers and sisters, believed and they served Jesus. Seeing the resurrected Jesus changes everything. Next, the evidence is that Christ appeared, says, then to all the apostles which would include the apostles and all those who accompanied with them. Many think this is referring to uh, the ascension of Jesus. Lastly, Paul adds himself. He saw the resurrected Christ himself. He could, he could see him. He, he was this proud Jew, this man that was so jealous and fervent with his focus on Judaism, so much so that he became one of the greatest first persecutors of Christianity. How could he become a leader of a very movement of God that he was bent to destroy? Because Paul had met the resurrected Jesus at his conversion on the road to Damascus. Seeing the resurrected Jesus changes everything. In these simple verses, Paul is laying out for us clearly the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. And Jesus rose again according to the scriptures. There was even more evidence that Paul could have used, but he must have felt that this evidence was more than enough to prove the reality of the resurrection. Lee Strobel was an award-winning legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He was known for his investigative reporting and, and his avowed atheism. But then his wife came to Christ. So moved to want to show her how silly she was and to disprove that Jesus was real at all, he went on a quest to use his legal and investigative skills to disprove Christianity. 
He thought it would be easy, but it wasn't. And during his two-year quest, the, the facts led him to the exact opposite conclusion that he expected. Instead of disproving the historicity of Christ, the overwhelming evidence pointed to the fact of the historicity of Christ. Instead of disproving his wife, he followed the evidence, and he too became a follower of Christ. His real story has been recently made into a movie that's in the movie theaters right now that's called The Case for Christ, which is also the name of his most famous book. It's not often you'll hear me the recommend a movie, but this movie would be a great movie, especially to invite friends and family members who have questions about Christ. In that book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel gives five E's to summarize the evidential proof of the resurrection of Christ. The first E is execution. Christ died by crucifixion. The Romans guard testified that Christ had died. Christ was buried under the watchful eye of Roman guards. The secular, non-Christian, historical testimony of that day records that Jesus was crucified. The second E is early accounts. The Bible gives us very early accounts of the resurrection of Christ. And as we saw, 1 Corinthians 15 records for us this creed of the very early doctrinal statement concerning the, the death and the resurrection of Christ. Even as Paul wrote, there were still large numbers of people who could attest to the reality of the resurrection because they had seen him. No myth or lie could ever have such wide belief, such, such wide um, acceptance in such a short time. It spread so fast because it could be verified. The 30 is the empty tomb. The empty tomb stands as a strong witness that Christ has indeed risen. There's never any debate from anyone about whether the tomb was empty. At any time, anyone could have simply walked to the tomb and examined it to see that it was empty. The fourth E is eyewitnesses. There are about a dozen appearances of the resurrected Jesus mentioned in the Bible. He appeared to individuals, to men and women, to his apostles, to those who were with his apostles, to a group of 500 or more, to those who did not believe in him, like James and Paul. Not a handful, but hundreds of eyewitnesses. The fifth is the emergence of the church. What else could account for the rapid growth of the church at that time? What besides the fact that Christ had risen and they knew it? What else could so change and energize these apostles that were running for their lives at the crucifixion and in just 50 days were willing to stand up and put their lives on the line for the truth of the gospel, for the teaching of the resurrected Christ? These men weren't willing to die for Jesus when Jesus was alive. But they were willing to die for him after they saw him risen from the dead. They all died martyrs' deaths. Only the power and the presence of the resurrected Savior could have made such a change and inspired such devotion. When all is said and done, when all the evidence is weighed, when all the objections are answered, there is one incontrovertible truth. This fact endures. Jesus Christ was resurrected. Jesus Christ rose again. Our Lord Jesus Christ is alive. 
It's the fact of the resurrection. Now let's look at our second point, the importance of the resurrection. Look again in your scriptures to 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12. It says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised and our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. Paul so clearly set up the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And now he uses that fact to teach the Corinthians about the resurrection of believers. The Corinthian church was confused. Not about Jesus' resurrection, but about the resurrection of believers. Paul questions them that since they believe that Jesus was resurrected, how can some of them be teaching there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection, then you have to be consistent. Then Jesus himself could not have been resurrected. What remains for a person who calls themselves a Christian, but but does not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? What remains? Nothing. He says that if Jesus had not been raised, then his preaching and their faith are useless and meaningless. As verse 15 says that they, they could be convicted as liars, as bearing false witness about God. In verse 17, he says that their faith would be futile and ineffectual and pointless. They would still be in their sins. There is no salvation without the resurrection. In verse 18, he says that if there is no resurrection, then those who have died in Christ are lost, perished with no hope. In verse 19, he solemnly says, if we only have hope of Christ for this life, then we are to be pitied above all men. What remains for a person who calls themselves a Christian but does not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Nothing. How critically important the truth of the resurrection is to our faith. If there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. If there is no resurrection, there is no justification by faith. There is no eternal life. There is only hopelessness and meaningless futility. It is very fitting for us to revere the cross. It is very fitting for Christianity to have the cross as our most important symbol. It's probably the most recognized symbol in the world. But the reality is, if Jesus is laying in some tomb in Israel, we have nothing. The cross has lost all of its meaning. Our faith would be meaningless and useless and futile. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes all the difference. It's the resurrection of Christ that makes Christianity unique. Perhaps we should have as the great symbol of Christianity, not just the cross, but the symbol of an empty tomb. During a trip to Portland, Oregon, noted atheist Christopher Hitchens 
laid down some seriously good theology. Most people recognize Hitchens as the author of a best-selling book, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. After the book's publication in 2007, this atheist, Christopher Hitchens, toured the country debating series of religious leaders. In Portland, he was interviewed by a Unitarian minister, Marilyn Sewell. The following exchange took place near the start of the interview. The Unitarian minister, Sewell, asked, The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, she said. I don't take the stories from the Bible literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Listen how Christopher Hitchens responded. He said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was Christ and Messiah, that he rose from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Listen to what this avowed atheist said. He said, if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was Christ and Messiah, and that he rose from the dead, and his sacrifice for our sins are forgiven, you're not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Of course, then the Unitarian minister, Sewell, wanted no part of that discussion. And her next words in the interview are, well, let's go some other place. See, this little snippet of this interview demonstrates an important point about religious talk. You can call yourself anything you like. But if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose again three days later, you are not in any meaningful sense a Christian. What a great irony that this outspoken atheist grasped a central tenet of Christianity of first importance better than some who call themselves Christians. What you believe about Jesus' death and resurrection makes all the difference. Even an atheist knew that true Christianity at its heart is all about the gospel. The last point today is the effect of the resurrection. Follow along as I read these few verses in verses 20 through 22. The effect of the resurrection. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. It's a pretty simple point. The effect of the resurrection is life. The effect of the resurrection on Jesus is that he went from death to life. That's what resurrection does. Takes us from death to life. The spiritual application of that truth is clearly explained for us in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see, we all need a spiritual resurrection. We all need to be made alive in Christ. Listen to these powerful words from Ephesians. They they describe our need for spiritual resurrection. As for you... 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the craving of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because his his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Folks, we are dead. Dead in our transgressions and sins. And guess what dead people do? Nothing. Dead people are powerless. Dead people can't do anything. Dead people need to be resurrected to life. As the passage says, because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, God who is abounding in grace, God makes us alive with Christ. God raises us up with Christ. If you've put your faith in Christ, God has taken you from death to life. You've been spiritually resurrected. If you've ever been used by God to lead someone to Christ, know this. God used you to do a resurrection. God used you to help a person go from death to life. Here's also the truth. If you've never put your trust in Christ Jesus, if you've never asked him to save you by his grace, through faith, through his death for your sins, here's the truth. The scripture says you're spiritually dead. There's no amount of good works or devotion a dead person can do to earn life. A dead person needs someone to come to them. A dead person needs someone to come and bring them life. Only Jesus can do that. He's the author of life, eternal life, and abundant life. Come to Jesus today and come alive for the very first time. Evaluate. Are you still dead in your sins? If so, today, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is a great day. The perfect day to turn to him and to pray, acknowledging your sin and believe that what Jesus did on the cross was providing for you the only way of salvation. Confess him as your Lord and Savior. Believer, if God raised you up with Christ, if you've been made alive with Christ, if you've been saved by God's wondrous grace, are you living like a new creation? Are you still dabbling in the stench and the worthlessness of dead things. As believers, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Because first and foremost, it changes us. Are you living like a person who's been born again? 
who's been given a second chance at life to be alive for the very first time, who's been spiritually resurrected from the dead, take some time this morning on this day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and evaluate, has Jesus made you alive? And if he has, are you living like you've been given the greatest gift of all? Let's pray. Father, on this Resurrection Sunday, we come to you now in these quiet moments just to be honest. We want to evaluate. We want to think. We want to pray to you, each one of us praying to you. Pray. Pray thanking God for the resurrected Jesus. Pray thanking him that he has raised you to new life. Pray and praise for all that Jesus has done for you. Or perhaps this morning right now you need to pray a different prayer. Maybe you need to pray for the very first time right now and ask God to give you new life. Acknowledge your sin right now. Believe in what Jesus did on the cross and how he took the penalty of your sins. How he rose again in victory, securing life and new life right now in the quietness of your own heart between you and God confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior it's his resurrection that makes all the difference Jesus we thank you we thank you in Jesus name amen